Amen. Thanks, Adam. If you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 21. We're gonna, we ended in verse 4 last week. We're going to pick up in verse 5, and we're going to do the whole rest of the chapter this morning. Uh, and as Adam was kind of talking about graduating seniors and kids from college being home, uh, I've got my own college story I want to share. When I was in college at the University of Missouri, there was a man who would set up uh, on a certain sort of section of campus, and he would engage in what he called confrontational evangelism. Uh, which would mean, I'll give you an example. So when I was in college, the sort of one of the like prevailing fashion trends at the time for uh, young ladies was UGG boots and jean skirts. Like I don't know what, but that was it. So UGG boots and jean skirts, and you there would be you know any number of college uh, females walking around in that ensemble, and if. Uh, it could be that one would walk by speaker circle, which is where this man would set up. And if he had just gotten there and he saw someone walk by wearing that outfit, he would yell something like this, you and your jean skirt are going to hell. And like the girl would be like, like this jean skirt, you know, like, is that me or that jean skirt that's walking over there? And he would do that all day. And it would attract massive numbers of people who would like argue with him, uh, who would go back and forth with him. Some people would just stand there and observe the chaos. I would do that frequently if I had like an hour between classes. But every once in a while, he would bring his daughter. He, this, his name was Brother Jed. He would travel to college campuses all over, but they actually lived in Columbia, not very far from Mizzou's campus. And he would bring his daughter every once in a while. And his daughter was like five-ish at the time. And she would often stand over to the side there at Speaker Circle, and she would wear one of those sandwich board signs. And the front would say, the end is near. She's like five, blonde hair, super cute little kid. But then she would turn around and it would say, and you're going to hell. And it would be this very like, (laughs) the five-year-old is telling me that the end is near and I'm going to hell. Like, and when she was present, there was something about like how striking the image was that It seemed like when the daughter was there, the crowds that would gather would be even larger. And she would never say anything. But there was something about the end is near on the sandwich board sign of the five-year-old that would like attract attention. As typically, I think, conversations about end times are likely to do. It sort of piques people's interest and their their attention a little bit. This morning, we're going to talk some end times stuff. That is the passage that we're coming up on in the Gospel of Luke. If you're just joining with us this morning, welcome. The end is near. And there's a way for you to not go to hell. That's the way I want to position that. But we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We've been doing this for over a year now. And we're coming into a passage where Jesus talks about some things that will happen before he, the Son of Man, returns. And I want to be very clear at the outset with like, what is the main point and where are we headed this morning? And so the main point this morning is this, that Jesus's statements about the end are intended to form us 
in the present. Jesus intends for his followers to be different today because of what we know will happen one day in the future. We're not to be people consumed by when those things are going to happen or trying to read the signs of our times and figure out how close we are to those end things happening. We are to be people today who are consumed by living our lives right now in light of the reality of who Jesus is as king, in light of the reality of what it means for him to be Lord of our lives, and yet with an awareness of the fact that he's coming again. We are to be people who live passionately, obediently, and joyfully under the king's rule and the king's reign with an awareness and an understanding of the fact that he is going to return one day. And if our thoughts about the end don't make us more like Jesus in the present, then we probably need to rethink our thoughts about the end. Say that again. If our thoughts about the end don't make us more like Jesus in the present, then we probably need to rethink our thoughts about the end. This is a lengthy passage. We're going to work from verse 5 all the way down to the end of chapter 21, which is verse 38. And so I want to kind of direct your attention as we read through this together. Three things to listen for. What's the timeline? here. Can we piece that together? Item number two, what is Jesus's intent with this? What is he trying to do? And then number three, what are the commands? And I would actually split that into two categories. What are the commands for his disciples, specifically the apostles? And what are his commands for us today as those who follow him? This is Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse five. It says this. As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, that's Jesus. These things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him. So when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Then he said, watch out that you are not deceived for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. For I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will even be betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. They will kill some of you. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but not a hair of your head will be lost. By your endurance, gain your lives. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. 
Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it, because these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled." Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on the earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring of the seas and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the coming, or the Son of Man, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree. And all the trees. As soon as they put out leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. But be on alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. During the day he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning the chance to gather and to worship, to come together under the banner of the cross, to join together around your word. God, I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and minds and eyes to see and understand what it is that Jesus has to say in this passage. God, I pray that you would use my words to bring clarity and not confusion. God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, bring truth out of this passage for us this morning and form us into the image of Christ as a result. God, I pray that we would be a people who understand and look forward to the truth that the sun will come a second time. But God, I pray that you would form us into a people who live humbly and lovingly, boldly and courageously, who live with grace and mercy and compassion in light of the fact that the sun will come again. God, use your word to mold us into the image of the sun, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you the danger with a passage like this. There's a parallel account of this in Matthew chapter 24 and in Mark chapter 23. So in the three synoptic gospels, the three gospels that are quite similar, Matthew, Mark, Luke, this passage is present almost word for word in all three of them. The danger in this passage is that we can almost like turn our brains off or something and stop reading with the intent to truly understand. We take our preconceived notions or what we've maybe heard before or sort of some like 
common things about the end times. We see that that's what the passage is about. We kind of lapse into that mode. And then rather than seeking to understand what it is that this particular passage says, we just sort of transpose our preconceived thoughts onto the passage and run forward with that. Another danger in this passage for someone like myself is to be too dogmatic about what one interpretation is on this particular passage. You could find a number of faithful, uh, intelligent, scholarly individuals who would take passages about the end times and view them quite differently. So we need to take what's here at face value, being diligent with what is said here, but we also need to take what's here and hold it loosely because there is a a measure of mystery that surrounds all end times sort of talk all throughout the Bible. Why do I say that? I say all of that because it's likely that as we read through this passage, you started thinking to yourself, well, yeah, of course, we'll know that the end is getting near when there are rumors of war and earthquakes and famines and plagues and signs in the heavens and on and on and on. But my question for you would be, is that what the passage actually said? Or is that something that we brought into the passage and then set on top of it? We're gonna do something super academic here in order to understand this passage and that's make a chart. We're just gonna make a chart together to try to get our minds around what is Jesus saying here? And so we'll start big picture broad first. Verses five through seven give us the setting. Now, last week we looked at the first four verses in chapter 21. Jesus sees a widow putting some, a tiny donation into the offering at the back and he has some comments about that. Kurt handled that passage this week. This week, verse five, where we're picking up, it's unclear. Is Jesus still there inside the temple right after watching that happen? Uh, or are they somewhere else? Matthew chapter 24 positions this discourse on the Mount of Olives. So it could be that they're far away from the temple, looking back toward it. It could be that they're inside the temple, looking around it. And somebody with Jesus, either one of the disciples or one of the members of the crowd, starts talking about how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus replies, it's not going to last. It's going to be destroyed. No stone will be left on top of another. And that would have been so emotionally discombobulating for his listeners. The temple's already been destroyed once. It was one of the darkest days in Israel's history when they were sent into exile back in the Old Testament. The temple got totally destroyed and then it gets rebuilt. And that toward the end of the New Testament narrative is one of the high points of Israel's history, that they're back in their land and they're rebuilding the house of the Lord. And now here is Jesus saying, this place will be destroyed again. And so in disbelief, they ask in verse seven, when will that happen? What will the signs be when that destruction is about to take place? And so in verses eight down to 19, Jesus answers their question. What will the signs be that accompany the approaching destruction of the temple? Then in verses 20 to 24, he shifts what he's talking about. Now he's talking about Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize that its desolation has come near. Jerusalem's desolation. Then in verse 25, through the end of the chapter, he starts talking about something different. He shifts forward again. Then after the destruction of Jerusalem, 
There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And all of that will culminate, verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a, in a cloud with power and great glory. And right in the middle of that, there's a parable about a fig tree. This is, this is important to see all of that because for Jesus, the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem are events that will most certainly take place and eventually lead up to the second coming of the Son. Those two events are facets of the passing of this age and the coming of the future age. So they're sort of the big uh, structure of the passage and what Jesus has to say here. Now we can zoom in a little bit and we can look at what he says about each one of these events. So in verses eight through 19, he talks about the signs that will accompany the destruction of the temple. That's the direct question that was asked to him. Teacher, when will these things take place and what will the sign be? And he starts in verse eight. Watch out that you're not deceived. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Don't follow them. So there will be false prophets, false messiahs, and there will be false predictions about the end. Jesus says, don't take the bait. Then he says, verse nine, there will be wars. Uh, you will hear of wars, so rumors of wars and rebellions. He goes on in verse 10, nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be wars. Then there will be these physical signs, like in the atmosphere, violent earthquakes, famines, plagues in various places, terrifying sights, great signs from the heavens. Then he says there'll be something personal that happens. There will be persecution that happens to you. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. You'll be brought before synagogues and prisons, before kings and governors. He jumps down and he says that there'll be familial betrayal betrayed by parents, brothers, relatives, friends, and then at the apex of all of that, some of you will be killed. So martyrdom will happen. And all of that, Jesus says, is the answer to when will not one stone be left on another in the temple? Then he jumps to a different topic, starting in verse 20. And he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. So they asked about the temple, but Jesus gives them bonus material. More will take place. Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. Those in Judea will flee to the mountains. Those in the city of Jerusalem will leave it. Those who want to enter it should not do that because it's not a good idea. Why? Verse 22, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. And then he says that there will be major distress and destruction among the vulnerable in the city, pregnant women, nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land, wrath against these people. The vulnerable will be caught up in all of the chaos and the destruction of this. He says all of that will take place and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. The city will be overrun by those who are not Jewish. So that's about the destruction of Jerusalem. Then he gives more bonus material, starting in verse 25. Then, so then at another time, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. There'll be these physical kind of natural wonders that take place. And there will be anguish on earth among the nations, bewilderment by the roaring of the seas and the crashing of the waves. There will be fear 
fainting from the expectation of the things that are coming. The very powers of heaven will be shaken. That's verse 26. Jesus says in verse 27, then you'll see the son of man come in a cloud with power and great glory. The son will arrive then at that point. A quick word about Jesus's description of when the son comes back. That's obviously an allusion to the Lord's presence among the Israelites during their time in the wilderness in the Exodus account. He traveled with them in a cloud. That's how they knew where they should camp, when they should pack up the camp, and when they should move. He led them in a cloud. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come back in a cloud. But it's also a direct reference to something that comes from the prophetic book of Daniel. Daniel is the one who coins this phrase, Son of Man. And he has a vision about what will happen when the Son of Man comes. And so I'm just going to read this directly from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this, Daniel writes, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Jesus pulls on that. And he says, I'm coming back. And when I come back, it will be just like Daniel said. I'll come on a cloud with power and glory to fully and finally install my kingdom and my dominion forever. And I will gather my people together from every tribe, nation, and tongue. People, nation, and language. And after that, he launches into this parable about a fig tree. It's not on the chart. Fig tree parable. Jesus gives the parable in order to say this. Just like you can know when you look at a fig tree or any other tree and it starts budding leaves that summer is about to come, you can absolutely bank on the fact that when these things take place, the temple will be destroyed, Jerusalem will be destroyed, I will come back. You can bank on it. The most common word in this passage is the word will. It appears 30 times. In English, that's a separate word. In the Greek, it's actually a suffix that's added to the end of verbs. It appears 30 different times in the passage. Jesus is saying this is not something that could happen. This is not something that might happen. He's telling you over and over and over, this is something that will happen. Just like when those trees bud, summer arrives. That's the point of the parable. When I was coaching track, uh, I coached alongside a, a man who had coached for a long time. He's retired now. His name was Chris. I got on the bus one day. Uh, Melody and I had just bought a house, and Chris and I had talked about this house. And so I get on the bus one day. I sit down. Chris is in the seat across from me. He looks me dead in the eye, very serious, and he says, the red buds are blooming. Cool. I don't, what why does that matter? And he says, you need to get your crabgrass preventer down right now. <laughs> because when the red buds bloom, if you don't get your crabgrass preventer, he launched into a thing about soil temperatures and crabgrass overrunning my yard. And I told him, I said, now, Chris, this is a little bit of a trade-off because our yard is entirely crabgrass. So if we don't, like if I put the crabgrass preventer down, our yard will just be dirt. It's like six of one, a half dozen of the other. I'm going to roll with the crabgrass. But I've never forgotten that when the crab or when the red buds start to bloom, 
you got to get your crabgrass preventer down because something about soil temperatures. And this is the right time to prevent the crabgrass. Jesus is saying, when those fig trees blossom, you know summer is coming. When these things take place, you will know these events are about to happen. The temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be surrounded and overrun. The son of man will return. You can bank on it, Jesus is saying. It's not that it might happen. It's that it will happen. Here's the benefit for us today. Jesus' disciples and this crowd of people, when they're listening to this, they don't have the gift of hindsight, but we do. And part of the way that we can trust Jesus' statements about the, coming of the, the second coming of the Son of Man is because we've had the gift of hindsight historically. Two of the things that Jesus talks about happening in this passage have already taken place. Zoom the chart back out. Give us the full picture. There it is. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It's happened. That event has already taken place in history. In AD 130, Jerusalem was surrounded by Rome and it was overrun. That has happened. Why walk through all of that? Well, because the vast majority of the concrete stuff in this passage has already taken place. So when the guy or the gal on YouTube looks at the events that are taking place in, say, Ukraine or some other situation and says, oh boy, wars and rumors of war, the end is close. We can say, hold on. That wasn't actually about the end. That was Jesus's warning about the destruction of the temple. And that already happened. When COVID swept in and there's this pandemic and people are looking around and they're saying, plagues, the end is near. Turn the sign around. You're going to hell, right? The end is near. Well, pause. Plagues, earthquakes, famines, all of that that people tend to get sort of whipped into a frenzy about happening in our world, that was actually about an event that already took place. Jesus was saying, these are the signs that will accompany the destruction of the temple. When we hear some of that, we can take a step back and say, I don't need to get caught up in that. I don't need to waste my energy or my thoughts on that. We can remind ourselves that Jesus literally said that all that stuff would happen and then the temple would be destroyed. And even in that, in verse nine, he says, when all this stuff happens, the end won't even come right away. It's not here yet. Look at the events that are supposed to take place before the Son of Man comes again. These natural signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. Nations bewildered by the roaring of the seas and the crashing of the waves. Anguish on the earth. People having fear from the expectation of things that are coming on the world. Look, just sort of like pick your eyes up and look around. All of that's happening. All of that has been happening for as long as humanity has existed. All of that is going to continue to happen until the Son of Man comes back. Go stand on the beach somewhere and watch the waves crash and ask yourself, I guess this means Jesus was supposed to come back? Like, no, the, like the tide is high? I guess the Son of Man is returning? 
No. Those things are taking place, and the end will absolutely come. But we'll be able to be certain when it arrives. Why? Because the most concrete thing in the entire passage from Jesus is verse 27. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That is the most concrete statement in the entirety of the passage. And so when the Son of Man rides in on a cloud in power and great glory, no one is going to see that and think to themselves, is this it? I wonder if we've made it. No, it will be absolutely clear. No one is going to miss it. And so Jesus says, here's this long line of things. Some stuff's going to happen and the temple will be destroyed. Some stuff is going to happen and Jerusalem is going to, be, going to fall. There will be a time of the Gentiles. That's not specified. There will be some other stuff that happens and then the Son of Man will ride in on a cloud of power and great glory. We will know with certainty when that moment arrives. And so the question becomes on the whole thing, what's the point of this? Why when someone says, Oh, look at how beautiful the stones in the temple are. Does Jesus say, yeah, they're going to be destroyed? What's the purpose of that? It's certainly not for shock and awe. Like he's not just trying to like ring the bell of his disciples. I have a friend who will text me every once in a while, middle of the day, all capital letters, Tim, and then nothing. And I will take the bait every single time. What? What's going on? Do you need something? Do you need help? And then 15 minutes later, I'm going to run at 3.30. Thank you. I don't, why did you do that? He did it because it's funny to get the reaction out of me. That's why he did it. That's not why Jesus does this. It's also not some like cool party trick where one of the disciples is like, Jesus, do the future telling thing. Big crowd, show them, show them what you can do. It's not that either. Jesus' reason for offering all of his prophetic teaching is primarily pastoral. It's not merely informational. It would appear that what Jesus wants to do primarily is to encourage and strengthen and form the life of his followers now in light of what will happen in the future. He's not merely interested in giving them some clues to his future coming. He's not just trying to give them some sort of heads up so that they can maybe like reinforce the infrastructure of the temple so that it won't be destroyed. No, he wants to form the way that they live. He's shepherding them. He's caring for them. And so throughout verses 7 down to 24, where he's talking about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, it's littered with encouragements. The first one comes in verse 7. Don't be deceived. Many are going to come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Don't follow them. Don't be deceived. He's trying to give them an encouragement and a reminder. Remember what I've told you. Remember who I am. Remember the things that I have said are going to happen. I am the truth. I've given you the truth. Stick to that. Don't buy the lie from anyone else. Don't buy the lie if someone says that they are the second coming of the Son. Don't buy the lie if someone else says these are the things that are going to happen. Stick with what I've told you. He's trying to encourage them. He also tells them in verse 13, in the middle of starting to talk about the persecution, he gives them an encouragement. This is going to be an opportunity for you to bear witness. 
He wants to encourage them to bear witness in their persecution. The great beauty of the gospel is Jesus' suffering on behalf of his people. And here he's saying, you're going to suffer unjustly because of me. And in that suffering, you will have the chance to bear witness to my suffering on behalf of my people. Take advantage. Use your suffering to tell people about the beauty of my suffering on the cross. He tells them that they're not gonna need to prepare or memorize a speech. He'll be with them. He will empower them to speak. Encouragement, comfort, a command, bear witness in your persecution. And then in verse 19, he tells them to endure by your endurance. Jesus knows that this season will not be easy for his followers. It will be physically challenging, relationally devastating, emotionally grievous, spiritually taxing. And he wants them to hang in there. Endure. Make it to the end. I'll be with you. You can do this. And when you've endured to the end, you'll get to take hold of the eternal life that I've promised you. But endure. You can do that. Hang on. It'll be okay. And then last, in verses 23, 24, he gives sort of a subtle encouragement that you should lament what's going to happen as the vulnerable are caught up in this destruction. Pregnant women, nursing mothers, great distress, wrath against this people, they'll killed by the sword, led captive into all the nations. And he starts it by saying, whoa, that's a word of lament, sadness. Like you should be grieved when you witness what this destruction is going to do to the people who are caught in the middle of it. It should break your heart. The brokenness of this passing age is going to wreak havoc on human beings who are made in the image of God. Lament. Woe. All of that is to the disciples as they await the destruction of the temple and the sacking of Jerusalem. Both of which Jesus positions as steps along a path that eventually culminates in his return. He spoke those words to shepherd them, to form how it is that they would live and think in the days leading up to those events. It's wonderfully kind and gentle and caring of Jesus to do that. He knows how hard all of this will be. So he gives them a heads up. He gives them a heads up as a means of helping prepare them for how they're supposed to live in the midst of it. And really quickly, I just want to zoom back from the passage because you can actually see the outcome of this in the rest of the New Testament. Specifically, I want to look at a couple of places. The book of Acts, in the two letters that Peter writes, First and Second Peter. The book of Acts records the events right after Jesus' ascension all the way up to uh, Paul's arrival in Rome. And Paul is gonna be martyred in Rome and that takes place in 64 AD. Again, when was the temple destroyed? 70. So Paul is martyred before then. Think about some of what the end of the Gospels and the book of Acts records for us. Well, at Jesus' death and resurrection, there are natural wonders on the earth, a literal earthquake. There are signs in the heavens. The sun is darkened. 
the Holy Spirit comes. And now Jesus is present with his people in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The disciples are persecuted. That happens. They are taken before synagogue leaders. They are taken before uh, governors and civil leaders. They go before the Sanhedrin. They go to their deaths, thank Stephen, without scripts. And yet the presence of the Holy Spirit empowers them to give beautiful articulations of the gospel in the midst of that. Rome is a conquering empire. There would have constantly been talks of wars and battles taking place all around the edges of the Roman Empire. There were false teachers, doctrines happening within the church that the apostles were battling against all the time, just like Jesus said would happen before the temple was destroyed. The letters of 1st and 2nd Peter were written somewhere between 62 and 65 AD. Again, before the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem. If you were to sit down and read through both letters, I'm just gonna give you some of what you would see. First Peter chapter two, Peter says, you're like living stones being built together into the house of the Lord. Why does he say that? The temple's going to be destroyed, but there's no reason for anguish, brothers and sisters, because the Lord is building himself a new house and now you're the beautiful stones, not actual rocks. He's trying to encourage them. First Peter chapter three, talks about how that believers should conduct themselves in the midst of undeserved suffering. First Peter chapter four, he tells them how to live in light of the end of all things being near. He reminds them that judgment will come, but then he tells them you won't be immune. It will actually begin with the house of the Lord. First or second Peter chapter one, he begins his letter by saying, look, we follow Jesus, not made up stories. We didn't follow some other teacher, somebody who said they were the Messiah. We followed Jesus. Chapter two, now watch out for false teachers. Here's what they'll sound like. Here's what you need to be on guard against. Second Peter chapter three, the day of the Lord, that's what he calls it, is coming. But we need to be patient because the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. So we don't know exactly when it is that he's gonna come back, but it will happen. And then he ends the whole thing by saying, and while you wait, watch how you live. That's his final encouragement. It's the exact same content that Jesus gave here in this passage. Peter got it. The disciples understood. The apostles lived in light of it. They didn't obsess over the details. Instead, they allowed themselves to be formed in the present by what Jesus told them would happen in the future. Any passage that tells us about the end does so in order to impact us in the present. Jesus' statements about the end are intended to form us in the present. Now, the good news is there are also encouragements for those of us who live now in between the destruction of Jerusalem and awaiting the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus puts them all throughout, verses 25 down to 38. So I just want to close by pointing them out. What does he say to do? Well, verse 28, when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, your redemption is near. Take courage. That's the first encouragement. The second coming of Jesus is reason for hope. It's reason for courage, not fear. Jesus tells the disciples, hey, as all of this happens, even the persecution part, even the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, take courage, lift up your head. The Lord is coming. I'm going to return. The same is true for us today. 
Understanding the end ought to give us courage in the present, not anger, not frustration, not disdain for unbelievers, but courage to faithfully and joyfully follow Jesus through whatever awaits us between this day and the day he comes back. Lift up your head, stand up, take courage. Then he says, after the parable, verse 34, be on your guard. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. Notice what Jesus tells us to be on guard about, our lives. Not primarily the behavior of others, not principally the political decisions of our opponents, not solely the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world. He tells us to be on guard about our lives, not to be dulled and numbed by the brokenness of the world, not to get bogged down in the worldly stuff that those without Jesus get bogged down in. We're to remember the gospel, remember our salvation, remember that Jesus is coming again and be on guard, be steadfast about the way that it is that we live because he wants to form us in the present by giving us a reminder that he's coming in the future. But he also says, be on your guard. And then in verse 36, be alert. Be alert at all times. And there's a tension there. We're to be aware of the fact that Jesus is going to come again, alert to the reality that it could happen at any time, but we're not to be obsessed about it. Alertness is not the same as fixation. Jesus did not give us these statements about the end times. The Bible does not give us prophetic material so that we can fixate on it. We're to be aware, but awareness is not the same as obsession. We should know where this stuff is headed. We should be informed. We should know the words of Jesus and the promises of the Bible. We should stand firmly upon them, rejoice deeply in them, hope fully in them, and yet keep living with humble faithfulness today. It is very spiritually helpful particularly when we get bogged down by the brokenness of the world to remind ourselves that there's an end coming where this brokenness will no longer be present. Sometimes you need the injection of courage that comes from that so that you can keep faithfully living today. Sometimes in order to be on guard against the way that we live, we need to remind ourselves that this passing brokenness isn't going with us into eternity, so I shouldn't stake myself on it today in the present. So we're on guard and we're alert. We do both of those things while allowing ourselves to be formed by the king for the work that he wants to do through us for his glory, among his people, to the ends of the earth. Be alert, be on guard, take courage, but do so in a way that compels your passion and your faithfulness a way that spurs on your obedience and your service and your worship and your submission to the king right here and right now, that you might be formed into the image of Jesus so that you both portray and proclaim the beauty of the gospel to the watching world. That's what the reminders of the end are for. And then last, be on alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray. Pray. Notice the direction of the prayer, though. 
specifically tells us to pray for strength and endurance right here and right now so that one day we can stand before the Son of Man. The focus of the prayer is both now and eternity. Your life in the present and your presence with Jesus in eternity. Pray that you would have the strength to humbly and graciously, compassionately and mercifully, boldly and courageously endure this present age until either Jesus comes back or you're taken to be with him. And as you pray, pray that the way in which you do that thing, the way in which you endure would allow you to portray the truth of the gospel and proclaim the truth of the gospel that this people from every tribe, nation, and tongue would be gathered to the Savior. That's the goal. Jesus' statements about the end are intended to form us in the present. I want to close with this. The reality of Jesus' return should make us a lot of things. Should make us joyful. He's coming back. Like this difficult, painful, broken world, this isn't it. I mean, we should be joyful about the fact that what awaits us after the passing of this place is something infinitely better. That's joy inspiring. But the reality of Jesus' return should make us courageous. Because brothers and sisters, there's nothing that could happen in this world so bad that it will diminish in the slightest the one to come. Jesus tells his followers, some of you will be killed. Some of you will die betrayed by your family. And martyrdom is what awaits. Take courage. Because even that cannot rob from you the inescapable joy of the unthinkable beauty of what awaits you in eternity when I return. The reality of Jesus' return should make us sober-minded. We don't have to get caught up in the stuff that happens here. It matters. We should engage with it well. We want to have the attitude, the disposition, the posture, and a representation of Christ in the way that we live. But we can be even keeled about what happens here in our world because this is not the end of all things. The reality of Jesus' return should make us bold, bold with the truth of the gospel, both in how we live and in the things that we say. Why? Because if I really believe that the Son of Man is returning and all the rest of the stuff that the Bible has to say about what will accompany that, the most important message that can fall from my lips is that the end is near and you don't have to go to hell. The end is near and the Son came that you might spend eternity with him in heaven. That's the beauty of the backside of the sandwich board. The front side can absolutely tell people that the end is near. That's fine. If you want to lead with that, go for it. But the backside ought to say, and the Savior died that you might rejoice with him in all of eternity. Like, we can be bold with that message. The reality of Jesus' return ought to make us humble. I'm not coming back on a cloud with power and great glory. 
Your favorite Christian author is not coming back on a cloud with power in great glory. Your favorite preacher is not coming back on a cloud with power in great glory. Jesus is. And that ought to make every single one of us humble before him. The reality of Jesus' return should make us expectant. We should long for that day. Whether it happens during our lifetime or sometime long after us, we should long for the day Like Daniel said, when the Son of Man will come back on a cloud and he will bring a dominion and a kingdom and will gather to himself a people from every nation, language, and people. And rather than what Jesus says here, where nation is fighting against nation, in that day, nation will worship alongside nation. And we should long for that day. Be expectant about its coming. The reality of Jesus' return should make us a thousand other things. I think I've made my point. But the point is simply this. All of our thoughts about the end ought to make us more like Jesus today. And if our thoughts about the end don't spur Christ-likeness inside of us today, we need to rethink our thoughts on the end. Jesus' statements about the end are intended to form us in the present. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.